You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 10, for January 27th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Welcome back, Metamorphs! It's time for another episode of the Metamore City Podcast. I am Chris Lester, your host, and I am happy to say that there are big things in the works for me over the next month or two. I can't share any details just yet, but I've had several very cool opportunities pop up lately related to my future career, and I'm waiting to see how they're going to pan out. Things are getting crazy busy around here, but it's a good kind of crazy. I'll be sure to keep you all posted as soon as I've got news I can share. On a related note, I'm going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area from February 8th through the 17th. Actually, I'll be staying in Santa Cruz during most of that time, but I'll be coming over the hill at least a couple of times during my visit. And if anybody's interested in getting together for a beer and some chit-chat, I'd love to meet you guys. If you're going to be out there during that time and that sounds like fun to you, send me an email and we'll try to work out a date and time that are good for everybody. That email address is feedback at metamorecity.com. Now, enough with the preliminaries. It's time for Chapter 2 of Making the Cut. Here is The Story So Far. In the year 1989, Christos Reckoning, a telepathic child named Abby Preston, was rescued from her apartment after her mother and father were killed by an unknown assailant. The rescuer was Victor Hincavos, a member of the Psy Collective and an agent of the Empire's Military Intelligence Directorate. The story then flashed forward to 1990, when a group of teenage Psy's were just graduating from Westfall Academy. The rest of Metamore knows of Westfall as a prestigious boarding school, but in reality it is a creche where members of the Psy Collective are trained in the use of their powers. One member of the latest cohort is Daniel Sharabi, a handsome young man who has earned the respect of his peers as the captain of Westfall's champion Skyball team. Along with his girlfriend, Rebecca, and his other classmates, Daniel has to go through an exit exam conducted by the Hive a group mind consisting of more than 2,000 adults from the local telepathic community. The exam measures their psionic talents and determines how they will be best able to serve the greater good of the entire collective. Rebecca performs well in the tests, but Daniel isn't so lucky. His psychic healing talent is mediocre at best, and his telepathy is weaker than 98% of all other telepaths. The Hive forbids Rebecca and Daniel from starting a family together. Daniel's powers are too weak, and they need the next generation of telepaths to be as strong as possible in order to ensure the collective's survival. There are already plenty of other men in the collective with much stronger powers who would be better suited to father Rebecca's children. In desperation, Daniel makes a bargain with the Hive. If they allow him and Rebecca to go to university together, Daniel will keep training in the use of his powers. He hopes that he will turn out to be stronger than he is right now, if he can just learn to use his powers more effectively. The Hive agrees, but it warns him that if he still isn't strong enough to make the cut after four years, he will have to join a bachelor cell and work for the Hive until their investment in him is repaid. Our story continues, five years later.
Chapter 2 May 2nd, 1995, Christos Reckoning Barnhart General Hospital, Valley North Borough, Metamore City Daniel pushed back his stool from the workbench and sighed, rubbing his eyes wearily. There was no doubt about it. It was cancer, all right, and it was advanced. Another patient was about to get news she didn't want to hear. News that meant months or years of dangerous treatments with toxins or radiation or death-aspected mana. You could get as mad as you wanted, cry as much as you wanted, but the tests didn't lie. The tests don't lie. Gods, don't I know it, he thought bitterly. He pulled the tissue sample out of the machine and threw it in the biohazard waste bin, then tapped in a few commands on the control panel and sent the results of the test to his computer. Tomorrow morning, he'd type up a detailed report for the patient's primary physician and have the lab technician start culturing Mrs. Atherton's cancer cells. Given how much the disease had spread before they found it, the oncologists would probably want to start her treatment with a sympathetic curse, and for that they'd need a fairly large sample of the malignant tissue to work with. He'd need to make sure it was a pure sample, too. If they got any of her healthy cells mixed in, the curse might affect more than the cancer. He shook his head. There's something deeply screwed up about the world, he thought, when you have to resort to death magic to try to heal someone. Psychic healing powers like his weren't worth much when you were trying to fight something that was a corruption of the person's own body. A particularly mean-spirited corner of his mind laughed at that. Not that your powers are worth much anyway, Daniel, it said. He looked over his shoulder at the picture that sat next to his computer. After all, that was why she had to leave you. He walked over to the desk and picked up the picture, running his fingers over the polished silver frame. It was a photo of himself and Rebecca, taken two years ago during a summer trip to Pyralis. They were standing in front of the ruins of an ancient temple of Wavelkin, built on a cliff overlooking the sea. The sun was going down, and the sky had turned a spectacular shade of pink, which contrasted with the warm yellow color of the temple stones. Rebecca was wearing an outfit that she had bought the previous day, a multicolored sarong and a red halter top that was open in the back. She was nestled up against him in the picture, one hand on his chest as she turned to face the camera. The rays of the setting sun reflected off the golden tan skin of her back and face, making her glow beautifully against his own darker skin. We were so happy, he thought, setting it down and wiping a tear from the corner of his eye. I hope she still is. Daniel had trained for four years to hone his powers, giving them as much of his attention as the classes he took for his degree in medical technology. While he had become more skillful in how he used his abilities, particularly his psychic healing, his actual power level had not improved. When they had finally graduated last year, it was obvious that Daniel would never be a stronger psi than he currently was, and the hive insisted that Rebecca be assigned to a breeding cell. Since Daniel and Rebecca were members of the Hive now, they had taken part in the decision along with every other voice in the Gestalt, and despite their feelings about it, they knew that it was the only rational choice. The Hive's reproductive specialists had provided a lot of data for the Gestalt to consider, projections about the future of the Psy Collective and its interactions with Mundanes. Everyone agreed that a confrontation was coming with the Mundies, probably within the next hundred years. No one wanted it, but the inherent violence of mundane society 
and their fear of evolutionary obsolescence made it almost inevitable. When it happened, the Psy Collective would need to be strong enough and numerous enough to win the ensuing conflict if they wanted to avoid being exterminated. Every Psy had to do his or her part to get them to that point, no matter what it cost them personally. Failing to do so was not merely selfish, it was suicidal. Daniel understood all of this on an intellectual level. He and Rebecca had seen all of the sobering facts of their situation as part of the hive's shared consciousness. The decision for her to join a breeding cell had been both necessary and obvious. Their parting had been full of tears, but they had accepted it as the price that each of them had to pay for the sake of the greater good. In the privacy of his own head, though, Daniel had found that those logical arguments faded in comparison to the emotional reality of his situation. He didn't resent Rebecca for joining the breeding cell. He wasn't even angry at the cell's other members, Brian, Sasha, and Fiona, for being with her when he couldn't. They were all his friends, and he had bonded with them so closely in the creche that he couldn't begrudge them any good thing. At the same time, though, he ached at the separation from Rebecca, and seeing her belly swollen with Brian's child instead of his filled him with a quiet and intensely personal sort of pain. He sighed. You're wallowing, he told himself. She's not coming back. Be grateful you had as much time together as you did, and move on with your life. If only it were that easy. I just feel so useless. Maybe I could accept it if I had some sort of noble, heroic purpose to fulfill, but I'm a glorified technician. Where's the higher calling in that? You gonna talk me into submission? Victor asked. Are you gonna shut up and hit me? Daniel's lip curled in sudden anger. Leading with the right side of his body, he darted in fast and threw a jab at Victor's face with his fist. <laughs> Victor raised his left arm, easily blocking the punch. Immediately, Daniel pivoted the left side of his body forward in a reverse punch, driving his fist toward Victor's torso. Victor spun to Daniel's left, trying to dodge, but he couldn't get out of the way entirely. The fist made contact with his ribcage instead of the vulnerable solar plexus that Daniel had been aiming for. Victor grunted at the hit, then grabbed the arm in a lock and aimed a kick at Daniel's knee. Daniel anticipated the attack and shifted his weight to his back leg. He drew up his left leg, evading the kick, then snapped it forward, striking Victor again in the ribs with his left heel. Victor released his arm and stepped back into a defensive posture. He let out a ragged curse, pain etched on his face from the force of Daniel's blow. Daniel hesitated, wondering if in his anger he had broken one of Victor's ribs. In that moment of indecision, Victor gestured with one hand, and a line of invisible telekinetic force picked Daniel up, spun him head over heels, and threw him to the mat, knocking the wind out of him. Victor had him in a painful submission hold within seconds, and Daniel slapped the mat twice, conceding the round. That was a cheap shot, he muttered. Victor chuckled. <laughs> you're fast, Daniel, but you're soft, he said, offering him a hand up. You don't have a killer's instinct. It doesn't matter how good you are in competition. If you hesitate like that on the street, you're dead. Give him a second or two and a strong mage can hit you with a lightning bolt. A vamp can hit you with a domination gaze. Hells, even a Mundy can pull a gun on you. And a teak can throw you around like a rag doll. <laughs> that too. Well... Victor amended with a wry smirk. Only the really good ones. They sparred a while longer, and Daniel won five out of the next twelve rounds. 
By that time, one of Victor's classes was coming in, and his assistants put the children through a series of warm-up exercises while he and Daniel hit the showers. You aren't the only one who's frustrated by some of the hive decisions, he said, as Daniel worked the soap over his skin and let the hot water wash away the sweat from their workout. I don't see much choice about it, though, Daniel said. I mean, I don't like it, but I understand the need. Victor made a sound of disagreement. The hive is going about this all wrong, he said. They have a long history of dangling possibilities in front of people and then snatching them away again. Did you know they promised me a breeding cell after my first tour of duty with MID? I'll be finishing my third next month, and they're still telling me that they haven't found the right fit for me. Daniel frowned. You're still trying for a breeding cell? With your teak as strong as it is, I assume that they put you on stud duty. Victor laughed bitterly. (laughs) Yes and no. They've used my spunk to make a lot of kids, but only in the test tube. The only action I've gotten in the last five years was from a god's damned sample cup. Daniel was stunned at that. Why? I mean, you're strong, you're in good shape, you're good-looking. Victor raised an eyebrow. As far as I can tell, in my own limited ability to judge that sort of thing, Daniel amended, blushing. I would have thought the ladies would be lining up. Victor squeezed some shampoo into his hands and began working it into his long hair. Have you ever killed anyone, Daniel? He asked. Daniel froze. Um... No, he said. I have, Victor said mildly. Fifteen years with the MID, Daniel, all over the world. Espionage, infiltration, sabotage, wet works. The military doesn't hire us to meet some kind of anti-discrimination quota. Psyops get the really ugly jobs, the kind where you can't afford to use magic that someone might trace back and find out who was responsible. He stuck his hair under the shower and began rinsing it out. I've had to kill quite a lot of people over the years. Now... How many of our ultra-empathic, bleeding-heart females do you think are actually comfortable with having those kinds of memories inside their heads? Daniel grimaced. I can think of a couple who could handle it, but they're psyops too. Plus, they're kind of into each other. Victor snorted at that. (laughs) Exactly. Active psyops don't get pregnant, and most of the women who retire from it have this thing about not wanting to relive the experience. He shook his head. Plus, somehow I've gotten the reputation for being too rough. I don't know where the hell that got started. Daniel smirked. Maybe they were thinking of your sparring matches. I know I'm going to need to use some psi healing when I get home. (laughs) Wuss. The Westfall cadets had finished their warm-ups by the time Daniel and Victor came out of the locker rooms, and the teaching assistants had called a five-minute break before Victor would begin today's lesson. The current class was Intermediate Practical Combat Arts, and the students ranged between the ages of 13 and 16. Most of them were now chatting in small groups, either verbally or in gestalt, but others were meditating to focus their powers, and a few of them were doing light sparring with each other using moves they had already learned. Daniel smiled, remembering his own classes. The five-minute break was a test in itself. How you used your free time in the Somnok was as important as what you did when the Kano was actually teaching something. The best students were the ones who figured that out early. Kano Victor! Daniel looked up and saw one of the students, a girl of maybe 14 or 15, come running to them from across the room. She was fairly average-looking, with a heart-shaped face and slightly pudgy cheeks, but she moved with enough grace and poise that he could tell that she was one of the better students. She had mousy brown hair that had been streaked with gold highlights, and her dark brown eyes looked vibrant and excited. 
She came within arm's reach of Victor and then bowed deeply. Hello, Abby, Victor said, returning the bow. How are you today? Great. Come see what I learned how to do. She took him by the hand and led him across the room to where a group of five other teens were standing in a ragged circle. Most of them looked nervous as Victor approached, but they bowed appropriately and he returned the gesture. Now watch this, Abby said, stretching out her hands. Immediately, the other teens stopped fidgeting and moved into a triangular formation, all of them evenly spaced about 12 decimeters apart on all sides. Abby took up the position at the head of the triangle, and together they stood at attention. At some unspoken signal, the cadets began a warm-up drill, punching and kicking the air as they shifted through the different BEPA, forms used to teach attack and defense. They moved quickly and fluidly, as Daniel would have expected for students of this rank. But as he looked closer, he saw something else. Not only were they performing the BEPA perfectly, but they were doing so in perfect unison. Even their breathing was in sync. Bloody hells, Daniel thought in amazement. They're in a gestalt. She didn't even touch them, and they're in a perfect gestalt. The cadets finished the drill and bowed in unison to Victor. A shudder ran through them as Abby broke the link, and then she turned and looked around at them, beaming proudly. Very impressive, Victor said, approval in his voice. He turned to one of the students. Lysa, show me the first five BEPA in the drill, please. Lysa bowed to Victor and then ran through the BEPA again, performing them flawlessly. Thank you, he said. Very impressive indeed, he added in a lower voice, turning back to Abby. Lysa's form has been sloppy for months, but you seem to have cured that. Abby nodded enthusiastically. I was thinking we could use this to help the other students get better. I haven't tried it with more than a few of them, but I'm pretty sure I could do the whole class at once. It's really not that hard once you get them together. I have no doubt you could. I'll discuss it with the elders at our next meeting and see what they think. He put his hands on her shoulders and smiled fondly. Well done, Abby. She blushed at the praise, reaching up to put her hands over his. Daniel saw more than respect in her eyes as she looked at him. It was adoration. We'll be starting in another minute or two, and I need to make some preparations. I'll talk to you after class. He gently removed his hands from hers, and they bowed to each other. Then Abby turned back toward her friends. That was amazing, Daniel said to Victor, as they moved back to the front of the Somnok. I've never seen someone that young pull together a gestalt like that without touching them. It's more than that. Those children were some of my worst students in this cohort. I suspect they won't be anymore. Abby took her own skills and imprinted them on the others. Scary. How strong do you think she is? One of the strongest I've seen. Victor looked back at her from across the room, a strange expression in his eyes. She's the brightest star in Westfall, and she's a foundling. If that's not irony, I don't know what is. A foundling? Daniel said, surprised. Power like that, and she was born to Mundy's? Hard to believe, isn't it? She's adjusting well to life in the creche, though. Already talking about joining a breeding cell when she graduates. Whoever gets the privilege of siring on her is going to have the strongest children in the whole damned hive. Daniel's eyes widened. He finally understood Victor's expression. Gods, Vic, she's just a kid. You're her Kano. I won't always be her Kano. And she's growing up fast. I'm the one that found her after her parents died, Daniel. She trusts me. She hasn't had time to be poisoned by hive gossip. When she's ready, I'll be waiting for her. Daniel let out his breath in a low whistle. The elders aren't going to like that. 
The elders can kiss my ass, Victor said, his voice quiet but determined. Listen to me, Daniel. If you spend your life trying to make other people happy, you're going to end up getting used, stepped on, exploited, and eventually discarded. The elders can talk all they want about the destiny and future of the Psy race, but what it comes down to is that they want you to spend the rest of your life slaving away to feed someone else's kids. And they will feed you just enough promises and allow you just enough comfort to make sure that you keep giving them what they want from you. Daniel drew back in shock. Yeesh, Vic. That's a little harsh, don't you think? Fifteen years, Victor said fiercely, pointing at himself. Take it from someone who learned the hard way, Daniel. If you want to make something out of your life, if you ever want to amount to more than what you are right now, then sooner or later you're going to have to go outside the lines the hive has drawn for you. He turned to walk away, then paused, looking over his shoulder. When you're ready to do that, you give me a call. Victor's words lingered in Daniel's head as he rode the Crosstown shuttle back to his apartment. He sat at the back of the large skimmer bus, staring out the window at the endless streams of traffic and the enormous buildings stretching out of sight both above and below him. A couple of young women on the bus had noticed him and were now whispering to each other and giggling, but he barely registered their presence. He knew he was good-looking. As the captain of the Westfall Warriors, he had been the object of women's attention throughout much of high school. Even at Empire University, where the standards for athletes were much higher, he had routinely been one of the team's most valuable players, and his classmates loved him for it. If it hadn't been for the fact that his telepathy prohibited him from sleeping with Mondays, he could have had almost any girl on campus. It hadn't done him any good in the end. In the Psy Collective, it didn't matter how good-looking you were if you didn't have the power level to earn people's respect. Besides, there was only one woman whose opinion he cared about. Sooner or later, you're going to have to go outside the lines. What had Victor meant by that? If he was talking about an affair, then he didn't understand Daniel's desires at all. Daniel wasn't about to jeopardize Rebecca's current family life by trying to continue their sexual relationship on the side. It would be hurtful to Brian, and Rebecca wouldn't do it in any case. The breeding cells were polyamorous by design, but there were limits to what was acceptable or appropriate. But somehow Daniel didn't think Victor was that clueless. Taken in context, he seemed to be talking about getting out of the bachelor cells that the collective had established as a place to put its surplus males. But leaving the cells also meant leaving behind active participation in collective society. That wasn't something that could be done lightly. The Psy Collective was, of course, collectivist in nature, from each according to his means, to each according to his needs. It only worked because the Hive's telepathic communion allowed it to make decisions as a unified entity. Everyone cared for his neighbor as himself because, in a very real way, his neighbor was himself. Those spookies who chose to live outside the collective had to learn how to function in a capitalist society. For someone like Daniel, who had been born in a breeding cell and raised in the creche since the age of ten, making the transition to independence wouldn't be easy. For one thing, he'd need a lot of money to pay off what the Hive had invested in him. Had Victor found a way to make that kind of money? He had worked for the government for 15 years, so it wouldn't be surprising if he had connections to people with deep pockets. But if so, why mention it to Daniel? Was it something he couldn't do on his own? The skimmer bus pulled to a stop at the end of Daniel's block, and he collected his briefcase and gym bag and got out. His bachelor cell's apartment was in a middle-class residential neighborhood, on the second level of the eastern central borough. 
Row houses with fasci of brick and mortar sat in the shadow of the super skyscrapers behind them. Most of the houses had garden boxes and potted trees out front, and well-maintained sidewalks provided about a meter's worth of distance from the busy traffic of the skyway. Daniel turned down an alley that ran between two blocks of row houses and into the interior of the massive tower, which held shopping districts and offices in addition to residential suites like the one he shared with his cell. Daniel opened the door to the flat and was met by the sound of aggressively cheerful girl-pop music, which drifted into the front room from one of the bedrooms off to his left. Apparently, Nathan was home. Daniel turned to the smoke detector in the kitchen and waved, knowing that it contained a hidden security camera that his flatmate would be watching. Hey, Big D! Nathan called. Hey, Nate! Daniel said, setting down his bag and briefcase. He went past the kitchen and living room and down the short corridor to the bedrooms. Nathan's bedroom was on the right, and David poked his head inside. The room was a shrine to technological brilliance and atrocious musical taste. Shelves lining three walls were crammed with computers, monitors, surround sound speakers, spelljack equipment, and dozens of bits of electronic wizardry that Daniel understood only in the most general terms, if at all. Piles of comic books and SF thrillers sat in nooks and crannies beside technical manuals, scholarly journals, and graduate-level textbooks. A narrow bed was wedged inside the walk-in closet, the covers mussed and strewn with bits of laundry. Every remaining bit of space on the walls and ceiling was covered with photographs and posters of attractive young women, most of them teenage starlets who had been given record deals more for their appearance than for any actual musical talent. A six-decimeter-high bronze bust of Tiffany Angel sat in a place of honor on the desk directly opposite the door, looking for all the world like an idol of a household goddess. Which, in a sense, it was. For the hundredth time, Daniel wondered how long Nathan had saved his discretionary allowance to be able to afford the ridiculous thing. Nathan spun his chair around and looked up at Daniel. He was a spindly little man, only a 160 centimeters tall and 45 kilos soaking wet. His thick mop of black hair and prominent nose pointed to his Yehudi ancestry, while his thick black-rimmed glasses revealed his nearsightedness. He grinned at Daniel amiably. So, did you beat him today? A few times. Victor's still better than me, but I can do enough to give him a workout. He still thinks I'm too soft, though. Nathan snorted. (laughs) Military types. To the ninth with all of them. You know that this whole PSYOP program is just a way for Big Mama to inject sleeper memes into the minds of collective personnel. One of these days she's going to flip a switch, and bam! He smacked a fist into an open hand. A whole army of stone-cold psychic killers ready to do her bidding. Sure, Daniel said, resisting the urge to roll his eyes. Somehow he doubted that Majestrix Kaya was planning to take over the Psy Collective, but this wasn't the weirdest idea that Nathan had espoused over the years. I'm serious, man. Take a look at the way the Collective is set up. The whole thing is vulnerable to toxic meme infection. Why do you think the Elders are so paranoid about trying to rehabilitate size who go crazy? You get a strong enough personality into a gestalt, and the other minds will be subverted by the stronger paradigm, irrespective of whether its viewpoint is adaptive. Ask me why. Why? Because, Nathan said, waving a hand for emphasis, it doesn't matter if something is true as long as enough of the gestalt believes it's true. That's the ugly little reality of the collective, Big D. They want you to think that the hive's decisions are all made rationally, but you can't get a rational product from irrational components. 
He gestured at one of the computers. Garbage in, garbage out. Daniel crossed his arms and leaned against the doorway. So, let me ask you this. If the collective is so fragile and irrational, why are we still here? How did we build a society that takes better care of its people than anyone else in history? Nathan cocked his head and raised an eyebrow. Gee, I don't know. Why don't you tell me, Mr. My Girlfriend Left Me Because I Was Too Weak to Be Useful? Daniel narrowed his eyes at Nathan. His hands shifted to his hips and balled up into fists. That's over the line, Nathan, he said. He tried to keep it soft and even, but the words came out harsh and half-strangled. For a few heartbeats, the tension in the air felt as heavy and dangerous as a meter of sharpened steel. Then Nathan visibly shrank in his seat, head bowing. Sorry, Dee, he said, his face reddening. Daniel took a deep breath and let it out, forcing himself to tone down his body language. Forget it. Is Kevin here? After the pounding Victor gave me, I could use a massage. Nathan gestured at one of the security monitors, which showed a closed door at the end of the corridor to the right of the entry room. He's with a client right now, but her hour's almost up. Shouldn't be more than a minute or two. Daniel grunted an acknowledgement and went back to the kitchen. After rooting around in the refrigerator for a minute, he pulled out a beer and a carton of leftover Hanese stir-fry, which he ate cold. He was just wadding up the empty container and putting it in the trash compactor when the door to Kevin's sanctum opened. The auburn-haired Seth Morin came out a moment later, accompanied by a beautiful and athletic-looking woman with short black hair and skin the color of teak. Kevin escorted her to the front door and held it open for her. Thank you again, Kevin, she said, standing on tiptoe to kiss his cheek. I'll be making another appointment soon. You are amazing. Kevin smiled at her, his eyes gentle and kind, even as he carefully avoided any show of affection in response to the kiss. You're too kind, Denise. Be careful with that shoulder now, and don't forget the exercises I showed you. I won't. Good night, Kevin. She left, and Kevin locked the door behind her. He let out a long sigh. Let me guess, Daniel said. Another one asked you about your full service plan. Kevin gave him a pained look. Can someone please explain to me why the words not a licensed sensualist are so difficult to understand? Do I need to use a larger font size on the advertisements? Daniel shrugged. People see what they expect to see, and most massage therapists do work for the guild. You're good-looking, and the ladies like the way you make them feel. It's not surprising that they'd ask. Even if you aren't licensed to do it for money, you might still do it for free. The thing is... Most of them know I'm gay, Kevin grumbled as he pulled out a beer of his own from the fridge and opened it. I've never made any secret of it. Hells, I have Stephen's picture out there where they can all see it. Daniel smirked. And how many men do you know who've interpreted lesbian as potentially bisexual under the right circumstances? Kevin paused, the bottle halfway to his lips. Okay, uh, good point. Daniel nodded once and smiled. You up to doing a little heat treatment? Victor worked me over pretty hard today. Not a problem. Give me a few minutes to grab some dinner, and I'll meet you in the sanctum. While it wasn't as lavishly appointed as a massage sanctum in a guild-licensed parlor, the room where Kevin met with his clients was designed to promote the same feelings of peace and security. Smooth, curved walls surrounded the room in an oval shape, 
and the intervening space between them and the adjacent rooms was packed with sound-absorbing insulation. The walls were painted a soft, warm yellow, and indirect light sources hidden discreetly around the room made it seem as if the entire surface of the walls were glowing. A few large potted plants stood at the far end of the room, concealing a stereo system that filled the sanctum with the sounds of rainfall, babbling streams, and the thoughtful melodies of a wooden flute. A narrow shelf ran along the wall opposite the door, holding massage oils, a box of tissues, a couple of framed photographs, and a pitcher of water next to a stack of paper cups. The center of the room was taken up by a fully adjustable massage table, as comfortable as any you might find in a sensualist parlor. A single wicker chair and a small chest full of more specialized tools were the only other items in the room. Daniel drank a cup of water to cleanse his palate, then took off his clothes and lay face down on the table under two layers of sheets. Kevin knocked on the door a short time later. Ready, Daniel said. He didn't bother to look up when Kevin came in. So, what hurts? Kevin asked, as he folded back the covers to expose Daniel's back. Daniel smirked, though he knew Kevin couldn't see it. What doesn't? All right, Kevin said. He drizzled massage oil into his hands and began spreading it over Daniel's back in a smooth, even layer. The scent of sandalwood filled the room, and Daniel closed his eyes and breathed deeply. What hurts the most? My ribs, my shoulders, and my sense of self-worth. Daniel had meant it as a joke, but Kevin didn't laugh. He began working his way over the major muscle groups, applying moderate pressure and following whatever procedures the school had taught him during his training. Daniel didn't understand much of the theory behind it, just that it worked. As he gradually increased the pressure, Kevin's hands grew warm against Daniel's skin, a manifestation of his mild pyrokinetic ability. The heat worked its way into the sore, tired muscles, soothing them and helping them to relax. (laughs) It sounds like there's a story there, Kevin said, after a few minutes of silence. Hmm? Daniel asked. Kevin's touch was so soothing that he had nearly fallen asleep on the table. About your self-worth. Daniel let out a non-committal grunt, which turned into a quiet moan as Kevin started working loose and nasty knot in his neck muscles. He lay there in silence for a couple of minutes while Kevin gently pushed and pulled at the knot, coaxing the muscle fibers into disengaging from each other. Eventually, the pain and tightness eased, and Kevin worked his way down to another set of muscles in his lower back. I don't know, Daniel said at last, looking down through the hole in the head brace to stare at the carpeting. I guess I'm just feeling conflicted. Victor said some stuff today that bothered me, and it's been hanging over my head ever since. Like what? Daniel normally would have shrugged, but his body was so content to just lie there that he didn't bother to try. That I'm soft, that the hive is going to use me as long as it can and doesn't really care about my happiness, that I'm going to be stuck here in this bachelor cell for the rest of my life unless I do something to change things. Such a positive, inspiring fellow. He should have been a teacher. Daniel snorted, but he didn't stay amused for long. The thing is, he said after a moment, that I'm not sure he's wrong. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the hive doesn't think I'm all that valuable. Hmm. Kevin pulled the sheets up over Daniel's back, then folded back the lower end of the sheets on one side and began working on Daniel's leg. 
Daniel fell quiet again for a while and let him work, replaying the earlier conversation with Victor in his mind. Can I ask you something? he said after a while. Hmm? Why do you stay in the collective? I mean, you don't have any telepathy. Your pyro talent's just strong enough to help you in your job, and you're not attracted to women. You're probably the only person that the hive has less use for than me. Kevin chuckled, a warm and gentle sound. <laughs> you may be right about that. But I enjoy the camaraderie. Not to mention the healthcare benefits and the guarantee of a roof over my head. If I wanted anything close to that kind of security on the outside, I'd probably have to join the guild. And as much as I can respect what they do, having sex for money doesn't really appeal to me. Daniel heard a smile creep into his voice. I guess I'm too picky. <laughs> Maybe. Kevin finished working on Daniel's right leg and moved to his left before Daniel spoke up again. Do you think he's right? That the hive will just keep using me until there's nothing left or until I get out? The redhead was silent for a moment, apparently weighing his words. I think that you should ask yourself what you want to get out of life and what you're willing to do for it. For me, it wasn't worth it to go solo because I'm barely happy where I am. For you, what you really want is a family, and realistically, you're not going to get that if you stay where you are now. What you need to ask yourself is what's more important to you, starting a family of your own or keeping the safety and security you have right now. You could work your butt off for a few years to raise some capital, work out a plan with the elders to pay off your student loans, and then go out there and make a life for yourself. There are any number of low-powered teeps out there who wouldn't mind marrying a guy like you and settling down. You could do it, but it would involve some risks and uncertainty and a lot of hard work. On the other hand, you could stay here, play it safe, and try to find a way to be happy with the situation you're in. Is that what you think I should do? I'm not recommending one way or the other. It's your life, Daniel. There's no shame in deciding either way, but you have to be the one to make the choice. Ask yourself, what matters to you? What do you really want? Rebecca, Daniel said, without hesitation. There was a long moment of silence. Kevin slowly lowered Daniel's leg to rest on the table. I meant besides her. Daniel let out a ragged sigh the familiar pain harsh and burning in his chest. Yeah, I know. He paused. If I did all those things you mentioned, if I built a life for myself outside the collective, you don't think she'd join me? Kevin put a gentle hand on Daniel's shoulder. It's not my place to say. I know she's happy in the life she has now. Whether she would leave that to be with you. Well, I guess that depends on what she wants most out of life. Daniel nodded thoughtfully. You feel all right now? Physically? Daniel shifted his muscles experimentally. Yeah, I think I'm good now. Thanks, Kevin. For the massage and for the talk. Anytime. Kevin said, patting his shoulder. I'll go out and let you get dressed. Don't forget to drink at least a full liter of water before bed, or you'll be sore than anything tomorrow. Got it. Thanks again. Kevin shut the door behind him, and Daniel slowly gathered his clothes and put them back on. His thoughts were still a muddle, but Kevin's advice had helped, and a picture was gradually taking shape. What do I really want? He asked himself. And how badly do I want it? He had some thinking to do. He would be meeting Victor again for sparring practice on Tuesday, 
and he intended to have an answer for him. May 7th. All right, let's hear it. Victor looked up at Daniel from behind his desk, his eyebrows raised in an innocent expression. Hear what? Whatever it is you're planning to get out from under the hive's decision, Daniel said, crossing his arms and leaning back against the wall of Victor's office. You obviously have something in mind, and you think you need me to do it. Otherwise you wouldn't have said anything. Victor looked into Daniel's eyes for a long moment, then raised a hand and gestured. The door swung shut and locked itself, and the chair in front of the desk slid back half a meter. Have a seat. Daniel sat, crossing his arms again as he did so. Victor sat back in his chair and steepled his fingers. About three weeks from now, a skyship will be departing Algra and coming to Metamore City. On board will be a small package containing merchandise that has been purchased by my client. Who's the client? One of Metamore's wealthier businessmen. He's working through a third party to keep the purchase anonymous. The contents of the package are extremely valuable, and if it came out that he was involved, it's likely that it would draw unwanted attention. All right, so he's bringing in the package. What does he want us to do? Play delivery boy? Essentially. Victor agreed, either not catching the sarcasm or ignoring it. The goods are of a sensitive nature. They won't appear on the ship's manifest. The client wants us to make the package disappear before the customs agents register the cargo, and then deliver it to a secure, private facility elsewhere in the city. Daniel nodded, frowning. A smuggling job. Victor's lip quirked. Exactly. Daniel spread his hands. So what's the catch? Why not hire professional runners for this? We do have a couple of runners. A face to get us inside, and a courier to get the package clear but our client expects some other factions to make a play for it. And in that case, things might get messier than a runner's willing to deal with. He's sending me as a security consultant, along with a few mercs for added muscle, just in case. Daniel frowned again. And me? Victor shrugged. The client is providing gear for one additional agent of my choosing. You're a good fighter. You can do emergency healing if things turn bad. And I trust you. He leaned forward over the table and lowered his voice. I know you understand what it's like to get screwed by the elders. I figure you're not going to rat me out for keeping the money from this job to myself, instead of putting it into the collective funds. But you're also a fellow teep, and that counts for a lot. He smirked. These other guys the boss is hiring don't like me. I'm a spooky, and that means they don't trust me. It's mutual. I need someone I can count on to watch my back. Daniel leaned back in the chair, nodding slowly. How much is he offering for this job? A hundred thousand marks, Victor said evenly, with an equal amount in hazard pay if we see combat and still get the goods through. I'll cut you twenty percent of that. Daniel's mind spun through the possibilities. Twenty thousand marks wasn't enough to set him for life, but it would cover most of the balance on his student loans. Thirty percent, he countered. Twenty-five, and I let you keep the gear. Daniel nodded and extended his arms, palms up. Done. Victor clasped arms with him then slid back his chair and stood. Daniel did likewise. I'll contact you a week before the op and give you the particulars on where and when, Victor said. He looked at Daniel and narrowed his eyes. Until then, I advise that you avoid any deep gestalts with anyone. If even a hint of this gets out, the deal's off. I know. Daniel bowed briefly, then opened the door and walked out, passing through the Somnok and out onto the campus grounds. Well, this is it 
he thought. He'd agreed to take part in an illegal smuggling operation. The threat of violent opposition was considerable. He was conspiring with one of Westfall's top instructors to withhold funds that, by the rules of collective society, would be the rightful property of the entire hive. He would have to spend the next three weeks deceiving the other members of his bachelor cell. But if he pulled it off, he'd have the resources to start a life away from the hive's control. And maybe, just maybe, Rebecca still loved him enough to come with him. I guess that I know what really matters to me. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast, right after these messages. What is Stranger Things? Stranger Things is the world's first science fiction anthology series syndicated on the internet, shot and released in high definition for free. How is this possible? Welcome to the cutting edge, says Chris Miller, co-founder of Patio Books. This is great online entertainment, says Michael R. Menengay, Farpoint Media. J.C. Hutchins, author of Seventh Son, says, Earl Newton and his crew are out of their minds. Stranger Things is a mini masterpiece playing right there on your screen. There are stranger things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Go to strangerthings.tv and find out just how strange... Your world can be. Hi guys, this is Minx, host of the Polyamory Weekly Podcast. Tales from the Front, a responsible non-monogamy from a pansexual, kink-friendly point of view. At Polyweekly, we talk about really sexy stuff. I mean, really sexy stuff like communication and honesty in relationships oh so freaking hot so hey if you're turned on by lovers who communicate with you and maybe are a bit booby sexual check us out at polyweekly.com that's p-o-l-y-w-e-e-k-l-y.com and remember it's not all about the sex This is Javert Vidoc, evil vampire mastermind from Buffy Between the Lines. Soon as I conquer Sunnydale, Metamore City is next. You can find out all about me and some other friends of Buffy at BuffyBetweenTheLines.com, but for now, you're listening to Metamore City. And thank you very much, Javert. And thanks to Tabitha Grace Smith for convincing that vampire mastermind to give me a bumper. If you're a fan of Joss Whedon's work, you owe it to yourself to check out Buffy Between the Lines. They've been putting together a really fun audio drama that fills in the gaps between seasons 5 and 6 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Go give it a listen, it's good stuff. The cast of Chapter 2, in order of appearance, is... Bill Bowman as Victor Hincavos... Heather Nowak as Abby Preston, Steve Ely as Nathan Levy, and P.G. Holyfield as Kevin Darby. Thanks again to everyone who's been contributing to the show. 
on the feedback side, I haven't gotten any new voicemails since I put together episode 9, but I have gotten a lot of email responses to Troubled Minds, which ran in episodes 6 and 7. I half expected to scare people away with this story, given the subject matter, but it seems that everyone really enjoyed it. Craig Sanderlin called it a roller coaster and said that the emotional impact of the graveyard scene hit home even harder because it came right after the, uh, unusual showdown with the Beast. Ka said that the voice actors in Part 2 were magnificent, which I totally agree with. Everybody was at the top of their game on this one, especially Minx and Heather. Michael Spence and HTI both commented on the twist ending with the Lightbringers, and HTI was particularly surprised to see Agent Starson showing a humane side. Well, you know HTI, Janus is a complex guy, and while he's a big believer in law and order, sometimes he does recognize that the law needs to bend just a little so that good can result. Of course, in this case, it's possible that he just realizes that Abby is too valuable for him to risk losing her help, and he agreed to leave Jenna alone to keep her happy, but I'll leave it to you to decide whether Janus was doing the right thing or just the expedient thing. Paul Sylvester says that he wants to see Jenna again in another episode. Well, there's good news and bad news on that front, Paul. The bad news is that Jenna doesn't appear in Making the Cut. The good news is that she's slated to make an appearance in a new short story written by Brian Watson. Look for that story to air sometime this spring. If you would like to send us some feedback, you can email us at feedback at metamorecity.com. If you'd like to send a voicemail, our number is 206-350-7333. That'll do it for this week's show. If you're going to any Super Bowl parties, stay safe, stay smart, and make sure you've got a designated driver if you plan on drinking. Otherwise, I'll talk to you all again on February 10th when I bring you Chapter 3. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.